How are those new headphones treating you? Oh, yeah. I was going to tell you about all, all about it. Oh. All about it. I guess that's good content for the show, huh? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of camera gear. I have been putting off owning good headphones for as long as I can, even though it feels like it's a big part of everything that I do, that mm. I should care about sound more than I do. And I mean, I like it. I like good speakers and good headphones. Mm-hmm. You just didn't want to pay for it. Yeah, I just didn't want to pay for it. Is it is it actually the cost, or was it that you don't like having them on your head? That's part of it. I thought that maybe I could be like an on-ear person. I did try those on-ear, mm. cheaper headphones. I mean, I did own those CB1s for a while, but yeah, like they make my ears warm. And I think some of it may just be the confinement. Maybe I needed bigger cups. I don't know. Yep. And so, obviously, if you're going to get headphones... Like you're gonna get, you know, if you're spending less than two hundred bucks, you're buying, what is it, the, the ATX, fifth, the Audio Technica fifty MX MX fifties. Yeah, M fifty X. That's what yeah, I have. Yeah, those. Or you're buying some Bare Dynamic DT seven seventy Pros. So I'm looking at the Audio Technicas. I'm looking at the Bare Dynamics, and from what I can tell, if you're looking for something that's portable, that folds down, that has more accessories, is more versatile the Audio-Technica is a better choice. I think, in general, all the way around, the Audio-Technica's are a better headphone. <laughs> but is that the headphone you got? I bought the Bear Dynamic DT770. <laughs> For re- reason one, they, have, they seem like they have bigger ear cups, and because of how much I have problems with, like, oh, my, my ears are hot, or, oh, I don't like how these fit, or they squish my ears too much, and I'm a giant baby about it, mm-hmm. I thought... Getting like the really big cups with those velvet pads mm-hmm. would be would be better. I'd be like putting a pillow up on my ears, and so for that reason. And then uh, on their refurb store from Bear Dynamics themselves, I, th- I bought these for like hundred and ten bucks, hundred fifteen dollars. That's not bad. And so they were like forty dollars cheaper than any of the Audio Technica yeah. options. Because I think my M fifty Xs were like a hundred and fifty. Yeah, and that was, that was the other thing. It was they were cheaper, and I think that that maybe they're going to be more comfortable, but they're worse for travel. The cord on the ear cup doesn't come out. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Oh, I, I hate it. It's terrible. I think that like practically speaking, everything about these is worse. But I think that they're going to be more comfortable for me, and maybe that's okay. Well, I don't know. You're wearing them right now, so how is the comfort? Uh, well, I bought some. Some cooling gel ear cups. Ooh, fancy! It's like a, it's like a refrigerator on my head. <laughs> so it's work, working true. pretty well so far. Yeah, so far, yeah. They're not. They don't feel as deep as the those standard cups that come with it, and mm. so the edges of my ears are touching the the screens mm. on the inside. So I don't know about that. That's no, kind of a problem wrong. for me. Like I need them to be. I need them to be like just a smidge, a smidge wider. Yeah. Hmm. So maybe, maybe the other cups didn't do that, but they held more heat in. Yeah. So I don't know. Got to pick and choose, I guess. We'll see. Yeah. You said you had some trouble driving them from your phone. Is that right? Yeah. So whenever you buy the GT770s, you can get them in three different ohms or impedances. Sorry. And I guess like the higher impedance, the better sounding because you can like drive them harder. Mm, and so like obviously you want to get the 220 ohms which I did not do because I'm going to use these headphones for editing this podcast, editing video and recording this podcast. Yeah. And so I'm like, all right, what can my laptop drive? They can actually drive the two twenties. Sweet. What can my iPad drive? 
oh, I guess it depends upon that stupid little DAC because it doesn't have headphones. Well, maybe I won't worry about that. Or what is uh, the recorder? We use like a what a, a Zoom pod track something something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pod track. Yeah. Okay. What is what does that support? And I think it's like sixty-seven ohms or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think it was something like that. I think it can drive more, but that's what they like rate it for yeah. for the battery life. Mm, I see. So I, I probably could have gone with 80 ohm, which would be halfway between. So they do 32, 80, and 220. But I went with the 32 because I was like, mm, you know, probably go with the stupidest one and then it'll work with everything. Uh, and then I tried it with my phone today. And I had to like turn the volume all the way up nearly hmm. in order to like get a really decent decent sound out of it. So I wonder why that is. It's weird. I think it's just the the audio driver and that dumb DAC thing isn't great. But like honestly I'm not really gonna use these with my phone. I'm using them with my laptop I'm using for this. So. Yeah. Yeah, you're like it's more for doing work stuff rather than casual listening. Yeah, it's for things where the sound matters. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yep. So I guess so far I'm relatively happy with it. Uh I don't think I would have like super loved the Audio Technicas, even though they're more portable and they fold down and they have a removable cable and they probably have a cleaner sound signature. I don't know. Even though they're better in every way, you just wouldn't have liked them as much. Well, like you definitely, the, you definitely feel more hipster having better dynamics, don't you? They're they're German made. It even says yeah. so on the package. Mm-hmm. You know, I got a German car, have a German last name, and now I have German made headphones. Yeah, there you go. It's all on brand for me. It is. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like the the signature on the like the high end is like. There's like a unique like bare dynamic tone thing that they do. And so it, it, you have a little more response on the high end. And then I think that the mid lows are a little less hmm. whenever you compare the interesting audio technicas versus the bare dynamics. It's interesting to hear you say that because one thing I've always noticed about the audio technicas is that I feel like I get more clarity on the high end than what most other headphones and speakers give. Mm-hmm. And so when I edit stuff, I have to be careful because if it sounds a little sharp to me, like, you know, a little a little too much on the high end, that's probably going to actually sound good on most other speakers and headphones. And so it sounds like yours may do something similar or maybe even more so. Maybe these, the podcast is going to sound drastically different depending <laughs> on who edits it. Well, we'll see, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think it's more of like understanding what it sounds like on your own headphones and then also knowing what that sounds like then on like a computer speaker and car speakers and other things and like once you are super super familiar with your tools you know yeah. like this is where i need to land for it to be good for everything else yeah. yeah like listening to other podcasts on your headphones enough to understand like this is what normal sound sounds like is probably a good idea oh that's like that is a good idea i should do that so i don't know they came in yesterday i'm using them for the first long duration right now and uh, we'll, we'll report back in an hour, yeah. and uh, I'll let you know how they're going. We'll see if uh, if you start pulling them off like you do with the old, or you, like you did with the old ones. Where I look over yeah. and you just have one one ear cup still on your head. Uh, it makes me feel like you know, like whenever you're, whenever like an art, like they're shooting some footage of like an artist or someone who's like singing a song, and they like they like take one cup off, mm-hmm. they like maybe like put their finger over their ear or yep. something, and they're yep. like. That's me, but for podcasting. And so uh, whenever my whenever I take like one cup off, it's because I'm like really getting into it. Oh, and I, just, okay. I have to be able to hear myself so that the intonations come across <laughs> perfectly as I list every single specification of something. I'm like, I'm like, X-Trans! <laughs> and that's our podcast. <laughs> 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 
Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're back today to talk more about the gear we use for photo and video. Okay, so before we jump into this, you're like, how many how many segments do we have on this podcast? You mean like recurring things that pop up here and there? Yeah, that, like, that sort of like can you list all of our segments? Well, we've got Lucas's Movie Corner. That comes up sometimes. Mm-hmm. We have yep. Legendary Lenses. Yep. Um, I don't know what else counts. I mean, we say the words Fujicast and Nikoncast sure. a lot, but those are more descriptors. I don't think those are segments. We've done one one segment one time, which was uh, photography tips. Uh, yeah, we did. Yeah, so, that was pretty recent. I'm count. I'm counting that as a corner. Okay. And so now we are we we have a full triangle of diffusion. That's a very strong shape. Too. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I think we're good there. We can't add any more segments, but we have okay. we have the triangle. We do. We are like we are like Tiffin and the Triforce, and I have a movie corner before we get into this. Well, all right. What is it? Okay, I was I was kind of doing a, a little dive on like practical effects because practical effects are, are way better than not practical effects. Mm, hot take. I'm just saying maybe movies were better in the 80s whenever computers didn't exist. Mm, you really are a hipster with those new headphones. <laughs> <laughs> computers did exist in the 80s, by the way. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> okay, so this there is this movie that I've been waiting to see and I finally saw it yesterday. And it's called 65, and it stars Adam Driver. And going into the movie the whole time, I was like, okay, the gag at the end of this is that what actually killed the dinosaurs was Adam Driver. Man, spoiler alert. That's not what happened. Uh-huh. But like, I was like, that's got to be the, that's gotta be the catch. Uh, it's like when people ask what happened to the dinosaurs, uh-huh. Adam Driver went back in time and killed them all. I see. Not what happened, unfortunately. And, I mean, it's like, it's a really straightforward movie. It's got Adam Driver in it. He's got he's got like a spaceship and a gun and there's dinosaurs, right? Uh, how can you go wrong? Exactly, and it it could have been so much better. It needed to be like twenty percent more dinosaurs, and then like twenty percent scarier, hmm. and it would have been way better. So it just wasn't quite there. Yeah, and all the dinosaurs are computerized, and you go back. Do and you, you mean think, like they're robots or they were CGI? They were CGI. Okay. They were computer generated. I see. I don't, there's probably maybe a few practicals, but in general, it's just all, you know, your standard CG dinosaur mm-hmm. affair. Yeah. And it reminds me of Jurassic Park and like that, you know, in the the famous scene of, you know, where they're, they're the T-Rex has made it out of the cage and it's raining and they're like, and their cars are stopped and they're waiting and like the, the you get the first sight of the T-Rex and attacks them and all that stuff. Right. And like that whole thing was like animatronic. It was a real dinosaur puppet that they built. They could like move around and like they hand carved all the scales on it. And I feel like that mag that that like level of like detail and care and whatever just doesn't like exist for effects in movies anymore. I mean it does. Like people spend a lot of time on all their all their computer stuff. But I kind of miss like the magnitude of those practical effects. Yeah. It's interesting. I also find it really interesting that you're talking about this today because I happened to read a Twitter thread earlier about Jurassic Park. Go on. But it was actually about the CGI in Jurassic Park. Ooh. And if this thread is to be believed, there was only six minutes of on-screen dinosaur CGI in that movie. There was nine minutes of animatronics and practical effects, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But the... Uh, 
the CGI aspects of it apparently like were pretty influential as far as, you know, movie history goes. And according to this thread, it had effects such as like prompting George Lucas to start on the Star Wars prequels and um, like it made Stanley Kubrick invest in like the AI movie and all that. And so it's kind of, it's interesting. I don't know. So while being a landmark in animatronic development, it also paved the way for horrible CGI taking over. Yeah, it's yeah. not horrible. It's fine. CGI is great. Whatever. We all love it. Right. I mean, it's basically like Jurassic Park was an inflection point. I mean, it kind of was. But I think my point was like this movie 65, like it was fine. But I think that the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex in Jurassic Park in, in, in all its practical glory was way better and looked better and like interacted with everyone in the scene in a more like tangible way mm-hmm. than this, you know, 30 years later yeah. dinosaur movie. That's interesting. It's like the CGI stuff has gotten so good, but it still just somehow can't quite hit the mark. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I like, I like how Christopher Nolan really relies on practical wherever he can. And I think that, you know, CGI is, can be tastefully done. And like the movie, like social, social networks won an award for CGI mm-hmm. because like all the background stuff had been like mass and post and you can't even tell. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fantastic. I just, I don't know. I feel like there's like practical needs to come back in a lot of places. Yeah. And maybe at least for like those cornerstone things, like there's a big difference between saying CGI was used for the background or to like build out a crowd or something. There's a big difference between that and like the big bad monster in your movie is CGI. Mm -hmm. Like that, maybe that's the difference. I want, I want those big bad monsters that are like touching, touching the actors and Mm -hmm. like interfacing with them directly to be like just rubber and plastic. (laughs) And I want, I want to just be as gross as possible. Yeah. Well, whenever you make your feature film, that's going to be how you do it. It's going to be a hundred percent practical. Yeah. Yep. Just wait for it. It's coming. (laughs) All right. So that's my, that's, that's my take on, on 65. I like it. It needs practical dinosaurs and needs more dinosaurs. Practical and more dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that could probably just be the thing for, a lot of movies. Yeah. 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 Both of those things specifically. <laughs> like I want to see fast, fast 11 with dinosaurs. Yes. Well, with, with only 20% more dinosaurs. Yeah. 20% more dinosaurs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got uh Toretto rolling in. He's, he's riding a brontosaurus and uh, yeah. Yeah. That's the one that didn't exist, right? I think that's right. Yeah. Perfect. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not really a dinosaur expert. We'll have to ask Julian next time we see him. <laughs> he's only two, but he knows a lot more about dinosaurs than I do. Yeah. He's, he's basically an expert. Yeah. All right. Well, what are we actually talking about today? You tell me. Oh, man. I have to tell you. So we filmed this event recently, and it was a youth event with our church. It was about four days long. And we were in charge of filming some aspects of the event and then making a highlight video And it was kind of a short turnaround time because the event was on like a Monday through Thursday and we needed to have the video done by the following weekend. So a lot shorter of a production schedule, you know, than most, uh, most things you'd shoot. Yeah. And like the big catch on this was that the event ended, you know, nine o'clock on Thursday and we needed to issue our product, which is a recap video on Friday morning. Yeah. And so it was a matter of like, how are we prepping to like, 
build this through the week, but knowing that like we still don't have all the footage, so, like leaving all the gaps and then being able to wrap it up as fast as possible mm-hmm. and making sure we have all the assets that we need and all the questions asked and everything ready to go so that whenever we're working on this thing at 11 o'clock at night, the day before it's due, we're not like, oh, shoot, uh, do, do we have that graphic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a different challenge than what we faced before and thought it'd be interesting to kind of retrospect on that and talk through how we did it. So kind of start to finish, what did we do for the pre-production? How did the actual shooting go? You know, how did we edit it and deliver it? Uh, Just thought it'd be fun to kind of talk through that and maybe that would help somebody else. You know, somebody listening to this is thinking about doing something similar. I think one of the interesting things with this is usually whenever we are shooting something, you and I are typically there at the same time. And we're talking about the project and we're shooting it and whatever, or we're kind of like recapping before we edit. And it may be like, I'm doing one part, you're doing the other. And it's kind of this more set delineation of work. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we did not interface during the shoot at all. Yeah. And then there was parts of it where we were both editing kind of in the same project at the same time, which yeah. we normally don't do. It's usually like, okay, I did this thing. I left some notes. All right. And then whenever you have time, pick it up. And so I'll pick up the next part and I'll, I'll push it along and we'll work like one after the other whenever really working at the same time in a project. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely a new thing. And I'm looking forward to talking about like how that went. Cause yeah. it was, it was interesting, but let's start at the beginning. So, you know, we, we found out about this project back in, I want to say April. Yeah, maybe. It, was, it was April time frame. And we filmed it, um, you know, a few months after that. And so what what kind of stuff did we do to prepare and, you know, kind of like, what do you do to get ready for something like this? And it was it was asking a lot of questions for sure, mm-hmm. knowing, you know, when when are things going to happen and what order are they going to happen in? What are our time frames? Understanding from the client, like what what do they want? You know, what are the, what are the key moments that we have to hit, making sure that we understand what those are, according with the other people that are going to be shooting, making sure that they know what they need to do. So it's just a lot of, a lot of planning. It was mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, making notes, making schedules, knowing where to be and when, and then just having everything set up. So like we knew it was a recap. So we had to pick a song. We had to get the song approved beforehand and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that factored into that was getting some agreement ahead of time on who was going to be involved, you know, in like the review process and stuff during the during the event. Because I mean, we knew we weren't going to have a lot of time between when we get the footage and when we have to ship a final product. And so nailing down, you know, who are the people involved, who who gets you know approval, and who is just giving input. Like understanding that stuff up front is important. That's a pretty important conversation to have regardless of the project and regardless of the scale. Mm-hmm. You Knowing who has the final say and who has to approve and that sort of thing is like, it's really hard to have that conversation at review time. Yeah. Because now all of a sudden everybody has opinions and you don't know who's the boss. Mm-hmm. But if you have that conversation at the very beginning of a project or a process and you know like these are the approving people and like other people can have an opinion but these are the ones that matter. Yeah. It's a lot easier to set that expectation ahead of time. And then you're not arguing about it whenever the, the pressure's on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, um, it's easy to get that wrong, you know, when you're new to this type of stuff, but that's yep. really, really important. The other thing, um, I think that, you know, kind of just in general, all that planning really, really is important and really helps, you know, in this case, one of the big things we did was get some music approved beforehand and that way we were able to kind of put together a project 
already kind of know what the flow of it was going to be. You know, we've got this song that's going to be a minute and a half long, so let's go ahead and cut it down to that length. We know that they want to show these types of things, and so we can kind of go ahead and chop up a project and make something that already has that stuff in there. And it kind of gives you a way to have all that stuff in your mind before you even go into the shoot. Yeah, knowing like, okay, I need 30 seconds of this and 15 seconds of this and kind of setting those areas aside. And I went through and I listened and, and basically took a, I dropped a title generator and then I just cut uh, on beats essentially. And it was mm-hmm. like, here's uh, a clip can be one segment long or two segments long or three segments long, but it's going to stop and end and start on one of these breaks yeah. roughly. I don't know if that helped. Did that help? It, it helped me for sure. Just to kind of, I mean, I, I, I could just start that way by here's a clip. Let me drop it in one of those spots, see how it fits. Um, but I think what really helped more than that maybe was you also kind of marked through it, you know, here's kind of where the, where there are inflection points in the song. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've got a, you know, it starts off and it kind of builds up, you know, so here's where we're going to get to some like bigger energy and then it slows down a little bit. So like we want to bring the mood down and then here's where it gets big again at the end. Like just kind of understanding that stuff I feel like was helpful. I think one of the hard things to in editing to music is that in order to do it really well, you have to like know the song and know where the beats are and know where the builds and the, all the crescendos mm-hmm. and everything happen. But in order to get to that point, you have to listen to it a bunch and it is exhausting listening to the same th- song a thousand times. Is that song stuck in your head? Cause it's kind of stuck in my head. And so like, if you can, if you could be one with the song, like you are when you finish the edit before the edit, <laughs> it would be way better. Yeah. But also that would probably drive a person to madness. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. But I think all that prep did help, though. Um, and I definitely feel like it made things easier as we actually got into the the filming and stuff like that. Yeah, I'd say so. Is that is that everything on pre-production? I don't remember what else we did, really. Yeah, I think that's about it. Um, I mean, I guess to me, like, my, my biggest takeaway from the whole thing was you know, doing a project like this, if you're the person that's editing it and in charge of it, you're the one that knows what you need. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're cl- even if your clients have put on events like this in the past and, you know, kind of know how the event itself is supposed to go, they don't know what you need as the person making the video. And so I, what I noticed is that you and I were having to do a lot in terms of like listing out, we need these three things. And, you know, here's a schedule for the event. We need this information about that schedule so that we can know what to film, stuff like that. Like a lot of that information was not going to be volunteered. You know, like we had to kind of take charge of this is what we need to get and this is what we need to make it successful. And so I think kind of like taking charge of that and driving that made it a better result. Yeah. And I think that's something that is common for really a lot of industries in just beyond just, you know, making, making videos and that sort of thing. And that's people will have an idea in their head and they think that you think the same thing, or they may like know exactly what they want or know exactly Mm -hmm. what their program looks like. And you have no idea. And they may just gloss over like, Oh, well, I just figured you knew that we started at seven. That's when we always start. And you're like, I, how, how how would I have known that unless you told me? And so like purposely asking those questions and knowing what to ask, getting into a project is infinitely helpful. And like, you just can't ask enough questions starting out. Yep. Yep. But hopefully we, I think we did a decent job on that part. Um, you know, and I mean, we obviously had stuff come up during the event that we had to ask questions about, but 
for the most part, I think we prepared pretty well. Okay, okay. Let's talk about the gear. Yeah. This is the camera yeah. gear podcast, Indeed. right? Like, yeah. let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the gear. Everybody's been fast-forwarding through all these yeah, segments. Yeah, they, so. they skipped mm-hmm. everything. Well, they, they listened to the dinosaur part. Yeah, obviously. Uh, and then they, they skip forward, and now they're on yeah. the gear. All right. What do we use? Okay. So, I obviously rigged everything. Like, whenever I do events, stuff like this, I try to make sure that I have one one bag which is my Peak Design 45-liter travel backpack. Fortunately, you can fit almost everything you own in that one bag. That bag is huge. <laughs> and so I had I had all my lenses in it. Not really. I brought too many lenses. Um, and then like my drone. So I had my Mavic Air 2, and I got the drone footage that we needed. Mm-hmm. And then I brought my X-H2S and my X-T3, as one would expect. And I rigged it out in the cage with a handle and my... Uh, small rig monitor. Okay. And this is the third time that I've used this setup. And I think I finally have settled on like a little, like a mobile rig setup that works for me. That's good. Because every time we've shot events in the past, I've like been, okay, I'm just going to take this monitor off. Or I'm not using the monitor or I want to like put it up to my eye because I don't like how tall the thing is or it's just not working. Yeah. And I haven't been able to find a rig that, that works for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm like, I'm finally there. I like turn the screen around and flip it closed and I don't even look at the camera screen anymore. I just use the monitor nice. screen. That's a good feeling. And I think for me, what it is is that everything's really low profile. Mm-hmm. So I have the cage, I have the small rig handle with the click button on it. Yeah. The record button. Yeah. So I can like start and stop from the handle. I didn't realize how much of a game changer that was for me until I actually had it because now I don't have to like reach around to press the button. Yeah. Cause that was the big thing for me was like, if I had to start and stop and like shoot a bunch of clips, I need to be able to like start and stop quickly. Yeah. And so my right hand was always making its way back to the handle where the where the button was. And then I'm going to be manually focusing because, you know, manual focus is like way better. Yeah. And so before you know it, you're just holding the camera. Yeah, I'm just holding the camera. Like I'm holding the camera. Like, why do I even have this stupid handle on here yeah. and all this stuff? And so the record button allows me to keep my right hand on the top handle. Nice. And then if I need to go like high or low or something different, then I can move it. And then I bought a, the handle has a, like a front mount for the monitor instead of a top mount. And okay. That, it saves you like an inch in height. Oh, cool. Which is like way more than it sounds like. And so it's an airy mount on the front. And the airy mount friction handle by Small Rig is way better than all of their other friction ma- monitor mounts. It has like an adjustable uh, knob on it that will change the amount of friction that it gives. And then the pin that goes, the screw that goes into the monitor itself has a secondary pin so the monitor won't swivel on oh, the screw. Yeah, that's a lot better. Yeah, so you can like turn it, and it's not loosening itself when mm. you turn it, and everything kind of just works. Very nice. So that's way better too. Yeah. And I mean, that's basically it. We, if, if it was a longer event, I would rig out uh, my bottom plate with the power junkie and an MPF mm-hmm. battery, and then power everything off the MPF. Yeah. The events that we shot were... I think we the longest one that I did was started at six into eight thirty, so it was mm. two hours. Yeah, and I ran through like seventy percent of an XH2S battery during that event. Mm-hmm. That, man, that battery lasts forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was mostly using the XH2S as well, and you know, pretty similar setup to you. I don't have the record handle uh, button, or sorry, I don't have the record button handle, but I have a regular top handle, and then I have that port keys PT6 monitor on top of it, and. I have a I have a whole rig set up with a V mount battery and stuff, but I didn't bring it just because of the weight. I didn't really want to carry that around for that long, and it was pretty much fine. I, I found that most of the time I was running through basically an entire battery 
uh, in two and a half hours. I filmed two separate things that were both about that long. Um, I don't know why I was using more than you. I think maybe I was just leaving the camera turned on more or something. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But regardless, those batteries are great and last a really long time. And yeah, I mean, I was pretty happy with my rig setup as well. I want to mess a little bit with my monitor setup. I, the, the, the way you've got yours sounds like it's a little bit better than what I'm using. So I might need to get something like that. Yeah, I would I would definitely encourage it. Mm. So that was the whole thing. I did the an NPF battery on my monitor. I didn't even charge that. Um, we did I did two shoots. Nice. I didn't charge it all like it nice. lasted the whole time. Yeah. So like I had that rig and then I used my uh, peak design cuff with it. Okay. And so I had the cuff on my right hand clipped to the camera mm-hmm. and then I was kind of holding it around by the handle. And I felt really good about that because like the specific handle that I have with the button on it that's fantastic has the like the the locking pin so i have like locking pins on my nato rail and so i can like when i slide it on even if it's loose it's not going to come off mm-hmm. and then like you tighten it down and so it's like double safe there and that was a like when we were shooting at one point i like reached down i was like is that loose it was loose and i was like Ooh. oh my gosh <laughs> and so i have that like you know, it has that double safety on it. Yeah, you basically. But, but then also, then I have the cuff on, and so I'm like, if yeah. the handle fails, I'm not losing my camera. It's gonna, it's gonna catch. You basically have your your camera handcuffed to your wrist. <laughs> I mean, basically, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that worked fantastic for oh, me. It was good. like it's 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 secure. It's just like handcuffed to my right hand, mm-hmm. and like I'm I'm good to roll. Nice. Okay, for lenses, I shot a lot of it on the Tamron 17 to 7200. Me, me too, and I hate it. It's fine. It's like I mean, this is just this is just the rule. Are if you're shooting an event, you're gonna shoot with the full frame equivalent of a of a twenty four to seventy. It's it really is true. I mean, it's just that's mm-hmm. an ideal focal and sh- length. And shoot it in the fastest fastest that you can. Mm-hmm. I don't have a seventy two hundred equivalent on my PSC, which for Fuji would be the fifty to one forty. Right. I do have a f four seventy to two hundred, a non stabilized Canon lens. Okay. And I've previously avoided using it just because F4 on APS-C isn't great, especially in low light. And I'm like, man, I just want it to be creamier. I want more compression. And I, I just, I super, super love the way that those uh, EF 70 to 200s look. Yeah. They're just optically incredible. Yeah, it's a very sharp lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like this one isn't as good as those, but it's fine. And so I actually used that a lot. That was my second okay. go-to. And so I got a lot of stuff where like one of our goals was like to shoot to shoot really wide for this and, and actually helped out with some of the editing too but it was like we wanted to get the scale of this event and so it was a lot of like big wide shots but you can't just have wide shots you got to get a lot of you got to get like faces so you like you yeah. get the emotion and then go big and wide and then get the emotion mm-hmm. and then go big and so mm-hmm. uh, i used the 70 to 200 to get as many like really close like face emotive those kind of things and you had that on the uh, the fringer adapter, yeah. And so I was using that on the fringer adapter, and like that's a really good manual focus lens. I didn't, I did autofocus some of this. There was a few things where I was like doing some crowd work, where I was like, I'm just gonna turn on face detect and see what happens. Yeah. One of the guys we were shooting with was shooting on a, a Lumix uh, S5 <laughs> Mark II, and I like looked over his shoulder and I'm like, You're not shooting in vlog, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're using face detect with autofocus. <laughs> What are you doing, man? <laughs> Honestly, his stuff looked pretty good. His stuff looked pretty good. Yeah. He's got a great eye. I just, yeah. I was like, 
what are you doing? <laughs> I, I did want to take that opportunity to talk about some of the other cameras involved because you and I were not the only ones shooting this event. Yep, yep. And we had other people that were also shooting at various times. Yeah, it made the color grading fun. Yeah, I bet it did. Um, so you mentioned that, uh, yeah, he has an S5 uh, Mark II. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly which lenses he has. I know he has a 70 to 200 and a 24 to 70, I both, both I, L mount. I think that's all he has. Yeah. And I think there's a 2.8. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, after filming that event, if what you do is event stuff, that's honestly all you need. Yep. It I is. Mean, I, that's all I used. I used my Tamron 17 to 70 and the Fuji 50 to 140. And there was not a single moment where I wished I had a different lens. Well, that makes one of us. Yeah. I mean, besides the Tamron, you know, I mean, but. I would have, I would have liked to shoot on like maybe the, that, uh, what is it? The Viltrox 75 1.2. That would have looked incredible, <laughs> or like an eighty-five one point eight, and have yeah, that. I'm sure your your eighty-two point eight wasn't good enough. You yeah. had to ha- would have had to have had one of those other lenses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even bring it. I was like, oh, wait, no, wait, yes, I did. Never mind, I brought it. Uh, you I had that sh- Peak Design bag. You brought everything. Exactly. No, I I didn't bring my sixteen, which is shocking. I did bring my twenty-three one point four, which I used for the gimbal work because that the twenty-three one point four. On whatever Fuji camera you have, usually I use the X-T3 because it's smaller. Mm-hmm. So that on the X-T3 on a gimbal, man, yeah. that's money. I love doing that. It's so small and light, and it looks so good. Anyways, that's not we're, we can come back to that. So the other cameras, we said we had the had the Lumix S5 Mark II. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we had two X-H2Ss. I mentioned the X-T3. Yep. And then we had someone shooting on a Canon 5D Mark Four? It's either a Mark III or a Mark IV. I don't know which. It can shoot 1080 30 and it can shoot 720 Yeah. Which I th- I still think that's the Mark IV, but I'm not, I'm not mm. 100% sure. Well, it went up to the Mark V, right? No, I think the Mark IV was the last one. So maybe it's a Mark III. Yeah. Regardless, a Canon DSLR. Mm-hmm. And then there was a Sony A7 III. Yep. Not S3, just regular three. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else? Someone was shooting with an R5. Or, yeah. Cause, cause I was, I was walk, I walked past them. We're having people shooting photos for this too. Oh, okay, that must have been somebody shooting photos. Yeah, and I, I saw this person. They had their their R five on them. Maybe it was an R six, but they also had the the R mount twenty four to seventy two point eight. Oh my gosh, that thing is huge. <laughs> I was like, oh, is that is that the the twenty four to that? And she's like, yeah, it is. I'm like, holy cow, it's like bigger than my forearm. Wow. And no, thank you. And, and Dan, I'm not saying that I have small forearms. I'm saying that that <laughs> lens is enormous. You also have small forearms. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> uh, I need to look up the I need to look up the filter diameter on that lens immediately. Yeah, it's gotta it's gotta be a lot. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little more about these other cameras while I look that up. Um, yeah. So I mean, I don't really know what there is to say. We you know we'll we'll talk about the editing in a bit, and I I'm curious to hear your opinions on the color. I have but, so many opinions on the camera footage. Yeah, but. I mean, this is kind of this is kind of the reality of of doing something like this. You know, you don't don't always live in a perfect world of being able to shoot with all the same cameras and have you know s- consistent capabilities between everything. I mean, you and I both have the XH2S, which is really convenient for doing our projects. Yep. But I mean, what we did this time, where you have a bunch of different cameras, is just kind of the reality of this stuff because you want people using cameras that they're familiar with. So you know, if they own a camera and it's you know some base level of quality i feel like you want them to use that camera and so you kind of work with what you've got 
Yeah, it's a it's an eighty two millimeter filter thread. That's not that big, which isn't that big. But I think what it is is that it those RF lenses are the filter thread size all the way down, so they're like a barrel. <laughs> and so it's not like it's eighty two on the front, and then it's like gets a little skinnier on the yeah. waist. It's kind of uh, kind of like so so. What's the word I'm looking for? So, Cylindrical. Sweat. Sweat. I'm imagining a word that has a V in it that starts with an F and ends in a T. I don't know. Anyways, you know, they're svelte. Is that a word? Mm, yeah, that's sure. a word. Well, like, like an hourglass shape or something. No, these things are like, it's 82 millimeters all the way down. <laughs> it's like a cankle. <laughs> it's just, anyways, the thing was chunky is all I'm saying. <laughs> Moving on. Okay, I think my, my biggest thing was, like, we, we've shot a thing where we had different cameras, but it was planned. And it was like this whole thing. We had a bunch of people and it was like, we're going to shoot this thing. We're going to get it in, in four takes. And it was, it's like, this is what we're doing and it's planned and we're ready to go. And for that, I like took the other camera types that we were shooting and was like, okay, these are the settings we need to use. These are the white balances. These are the color profiles mm-hmm. just because we wanted to be able to match it as close as possible. And we knew we could do that prep work ahead of time. For this, we had no idea what yeah. what cameras people were going to be bringing, yeah. and had no control over like what is what are they going to be shooting outside versus inside for white balance, and all this stuff. And so, like, I don't know, I don't know what white balance people <laughs> shot in. Well, and and honestly, the the whole event was pretty chaotic in terms of shooting because I mean, this was four days long. There were things going on in the morning. There were things going on in the evening. You and I both have full time regular jobs, and so it's not like we could you know, just be there the whole time and film it all ourselves. We kind of had to rely on other people to get some of the footage. And I mean, that's kind of, we went into it knowing that, but I feel like it made things, you know, kind of, kind of chaotic going through it of just like, all right, you know, who's going to be there at different times? Are we going to have coverage of all the stuff we need? How do we communicate to those people? And like, you know, what, what do we need to be telling them about what to film? Like that was was a whole challenge in and of itself. It's really hard to, to, to go through and say, okay, Sony person, I want you to shoot in for all the little life stuff. Make sure you're shooting in Cine Two, and uh, in in Cine Log, not Cine Log. It would be Cine Tone, yeah, mm-hmm. as Cine Tone. And then make sure that whenever you're shooting inside, shoot in 30p. When you're shooting outside, shoot in 60p. And then go to the Canon person and say, shoot in the flat profile, not the standard profile. And then make sure you're shooting in 30, not 60, because the resolution is going to be 720. And then go into the Lumix person and say, can you shoot in V-Log? Because I'm going to have a lot more be able to work with that and be able to mess with the white balance a little better. Can't do that. You yeah. just got to be like, okay, everybody, remember that you got to shoot in something that's divisible by 30 and <laughs> do your best. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what it was. So. And like like video isn't photos yet i mean like some of these cameras can shoot in raw but like you would never shoot in raw for this sort of thing and you can only whenever you're shooting in log you can only move the white balance so much mm-hmm. and we're shooting in a rec 709 baked in profile you really can only move the white balance so much and like some of the some of the footage that i got like some of the xh2s stuff that was inside was really warm yeah and for fuji like you whenever you warm something up it like, if you're too cold, you can warm it up pretty good. There's a decent amount of latitude. You kind of have to watch out to make sure it doesn't get doesn't get too green when you warm it up. But cooling it down doesn't have the same same latitude. Like, I can only cool down Fuji footage in that's in logs so much. Interesting. And it, or else it starts looking like, has this, like this weird bluey yellow to uh. it. And, like, I can't quite, I have trouble getting it back to, like, as natural a tone. You have to, like, work it a lot more if you're off by more than a thousand Kelvin. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, you know, it's like you got to get, you got to get it in that window. And so mm-hmm. dealing with that on a lot of the footage was fine. I made it work, but yeah. it's, it's tough. Mm-hmm. Do you have any 
specific. So like keeping in mind, we're going to get to get to editing soon and color stuff. But like in terms of the quality of the footage, do you have any opinions on those various cameras? Daniel, (laughs) I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) Okay. I think that the, my opinions on the a7 III are just the same as what they've always been, which is like, it has decent footage. It's pretty okay with, you know, noise work and everything. Like it's, it's, it's a fine camera. You can kind of work the colors. We've had a lot of experience working with footage from those cameras, which mm-hmm. probably helps. Yeah. So that's fine. The Fuji footage, I and mean, we both shot an F-Log too. And mm-hmm. because I, I swear, I never shoot in anything but F-Log two anymore. And I ever, whenever I used to shoot in a Turner, it's kind of hard to get anything to match a Turner. Yeah. And like when you shoot an Turner, you're like, this is what I want my final product to look like. And then you go and you try to mix in stuff from like Panasonic's and Sony's. It's, it's really hard to get those things to look like a Turner. Right. And so then you're like trying to like pull the Fuji back a little bit or add more contrast. And like it gets weird. Shooting an F-Log has been way better because you can color space transform that with the, into like the wide dynamic range WDR Brick 709. And that's like, it's, it's basically neutral. And then I can push that around to wherever I need. And we've done so many things with F-Log 2 in the last year that I, I know exactly how to get that footage where I need it to go. Yeah. So I love it. There's so much latitude. And the, the the Fuji stuff was the sharpest of what we're – it's the newest camera except for the Sony. Not no, the Sony except for the Lumix. Lumix. Yeah. Which the Lumix looked really good too. <laughs> and we'll talk about that in a second. So I thought that the – because we were shooting in log – the Fuji had the most latitude and the most flexibility and was the the cleanest image and had the most natural looking tones to it. Okay. The stuff that we got out of the Lumix was in standard profile. And I really wish that we could have gotten that in Vlog so that I could have messed with the Vlog because I think that would look really, really good as well. Yeah, you'd have more latitude for sure. Yeah, so I, I'm withholding judgment on that camera until I can see Vlog, but... The guy that was shooting with us has not used that camera in V-Log yet. And he's like, should I switch over? I was like, no, do not switch yeah, over. Not something to do right before the event. Yeah. It's like, if you're, <laughs> if you're at the event, don't do something you've never done before. Yeah. <laughs> Stick with what you know. And then like practice later. Anyways, mm-hmm. I just, I didn't want him to like overexpose or underexpose everything in, in V-Log. So he shot everything in the standard profile. And I thought that the standard profile out of that camera Looks really, really good. Yeah, I thought it's, so too. It's super punchy, like the it's it's almost oversaturated. I agree. It looks yeah. it looks unnaturally oversaturated. Mm-hmm. Not as bad as an iPhone. Man, whenever I bring <laughs> an iPhone footage into Resolve, I'm like saturation down by forty percent. But at the same time, I think that 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 look I think is pleasing to most people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a like in isolation, the footage looks great out of camera. In trying to match everything to it, I had to bring the Lumix stuff down by about 5 to 10%. And then I had to bring everything else up by 5 to 10%. Mm, so it was okay. about 15% different in yeah. saturation value. I, I felt like the footage from that camera in terms of like sharpness and like optical quality was really, really good. Yeah. And I don't, I'm, I'm sure some of it is because it's full frame. So, you, you know, you mm-hmm. probably shoot at a lower ISO. And I mean, he wasn't shooting in log. So, you know, you don't have a, a, a high base ISO. And so maybe he was shooting pretty low ISO. But, I mean, just the, those lenses seem like they must be really good because mm-hmm. all the footage looked really sharp, really good. Yeah, the footage was very sharp. Everything was super clean. I didn't have any noise issues with his stuff. Mm-hmm. It was – the footage itself looked fantastic from, yeah. from like a resolution and a noise perspective. Yeah. 
The other thing was the dynamic range on, not the dynamic range, but like bringing that in, like if when I look at it on, a, on like a waveform scope, it was like top to bottom. It had values at zero and it had values at 124, basically for okay. everything. It has so much contrast. And so I had to back up the contrast on a mm-hmm. lot of that stuff. Cause like uh, for where we're delivering this, the, like the projectors that they're going to play it on uh, are not friendly to the, to the black tones in the, in the footage. And so like, I try not to, like when you're looking at your vector scope, it's like zero, not vector scope, but your waveform scope, it's like zero and then like a hundred over it. And then on the top end, it's like 10, 12 and then like eight something and like getting it so that your highlights clip at the, at that 80% mark and your lowlights clip at that 10% mark and not really dipping above or below that too yeah. much gives it a little more compression so that it plays better mm-hmm. for where it's going to be viewed. And so for all of that Lumix stuff, I had to really crunch it down. Yeah, yeah. I guess, again, that's something that maybe would be easier with log, but I guess the base profile is just very contrasty. Yeah, I think that I think that's what it is, that standard profile. They're trying mm-hmm. to get it so that you don't really have to do anything with it, and I'm used to having to deal with something that's flatter. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. But overall, I really like I, re- I like the standard out of it. I would use if I was planning on not doing any editing, I would be happy to shoot on the S5 Mark II in standard and not mess with it. Good to know. Just don't clip your highlights. Just don't clip your highlights. And then there was the 5D, which mm-hmm. for a camera that's a thousand years old, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe around there, roughly, um, feels like it. So that was the one dinosaur that was uh, on our shoot. Yeah, <laughs> we could have used twenty percent more. At least we just had kidding. One. Uh, I believe that the the last two seasons of that show House were shot on a Canon five D. I think I remember hearing that too. Yeah, I just think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. The footage looked great. Like from a you know comparing it to everything else that we shot, the colors were good, the sharpness was good. Like that footage held up. It was it was it was great. Whenever I was viewing like the final versions of this, and like I exported a version 4K and 1080, you could definitely tell because it was in 720, right? right? Because a lot of the initial stuff that we got off that camera was shot in 72060, and like you could absolutely tell that it was softer mm-hmm. because of the res- the drop in resolution. Sure, but if it wasn't for that, it held its weight with everything else that That's we were shooting. Really interesting. Yeah, so I was I was really impressed. I think that one only has maybe. I uh, probably has like 11 stops of dynamic range in it. But I mean, it's still a, a totally valid sensor. I think it was annoying for the person to shoot with it because it doesn't have like a tilty screen and you have to <laughs> be dealing with all the DSLR stuff. But I don't know. I was, I was impressed with the footage that they're getting out of that camera. I feel like one thing that, one thing that really factors in here is that newer cameras that have more dynamic range and, you know, maybe more assist features, you know, better codecs, et cetera. I think are maybe more forgiving if you don't expose properly and stuff like that. I think if you're using an older camera like that, you basically just really have to lean on your experience with the camera and your skill in terms of exposing the shots properly, you know, getting good shots, getting things that are in focus and stuff like that. And I mean, I think you can get good, really good results from older stuff, uh, you know, at least up to a point. And like in this case, the person shooting on that camera does photography as a side business, probably uses that camera a lot and is really familiar with, you know, what pictures look like from that camera, what video looks like from that camera. And I think that helped. Yeah. And I just, I did the super res thing on it in resolve and Mm -hmm. that kind of helped sharpen it up a little bit. And I would say that I probably messed with the colors on that the least. Interesting. From everything. Um, Yeah, probably. I I don't actually remember. So it 
That's good. I think that like being having like with the age, it being a full frame camera really helped with like the lower noise floor and all yeah, that sort of thing. I think you're probably right. Uh, well, last thing I think we should mention in this in this part is kind of what the strategy was. So you know, we talked about how this is like a several day event. We mentioned having all these different people shooting with all these different cameras, and you know, kind of how we approached that in terms of like getting stuff as we went. But but Daniel, I'm not I'm not done telling you about all the gear that I brought. <laughs> how much how much more did you fit in that backpack? <laughs> okay, so I talked about my camera and the two lenses. And then I think I brought my 80 mil 2.8, but I don't think I used it. And then I brought the 23 1.4, which I did use. On the gimbal, And right? then you brought your Ronin SC Mark II? SC2? Uh, RSC2. RSC2, mm-hmm. which you used on the X-H2S, and then I rebalanced and used on the X-T3. And then I talked about the drone. And, okay, yeah, no, that was, that was everything. <laughs> Use ND filters. I didn't, I, I didn't use any Cinebloom's. I didn't use ND filters. Did you crank mm-hmm. the shutter? Yeah, yeah, for some of the stuff. Mm. Didn't even notice. Mm. I don't know. Now that I'm thinking about it. I don't have an ND that's strong enough for F-Log 2. We really should just shoot an F-Log 1. I just can't help yeah. it. Well, it's it's hard. It, it, the struggle is that outside, you're like, well, I should shoot an F-Log 1 because it's uh, you know it's got a lower uh, base ISO. But the problem is that you don't get that 14-bit readout. So Yeah, yeah. you like, want that dynamic range, yeah, man. I need that, so... Need it. Need it. Yeah. I just need to get a, a good ND filter. You got all, the, done it yet. all these other cameras that we're shooting with that are like, they're not even 10-bit. They're like 8-bit, 420. They got like 11 stops of dynamic range. And yep. you're like, I need the 14-bit readout. I mean. I need it. I need all, all 13 and a half stops of that <laughs> DR. Yeah. I get it. I only shoot an F-Log 2 on that camera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I paid for it. I yep. want it. Yeah. You want all 14 of those mm-hmm. bits. Yep. Mm-hmm. And like, like, honestly, there's a lot of stuff that we shoot where I'm like, this is a little noisy and I don't like having to do the yeah. noise reduction. Yeah, I, I feel that way when we shoot interview stuff. And that's the one thing where I think we can get away with that fog one because it's controlled light. We don't really need all that dynamic range. We yeah, should, that's where we should be doing it. We should switch to F log one for our next interview. Yeah. We'll try it and see how it goes. <sighs> yeah. Fine. <laughs> it's gonna look cleaner. It's yeah. just more, it's gonna matter. I mean, we're if we, we use the X I'm going to use the X for the next interview that we do. I'm going to take the X-T3. I'm going to mount it vertically right next to our A-roll shot. So our A-roll is vertical and horizontal at the same time. Good plan. Good and plan. that's going to be an F-Log 1. So they're both an F-Log 1. There you go. It'll be matchy-matchy. Perfect. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> cool. Well, um, before we talk about editing, do you have anything you wanted to cover on like the shooting process and stuff? Or oh, geez. Any thoughts there? Uh, well, I kind of wanted to dive into some of the shooting a little bit. But why don't we take a break and then we can get into some of the shooting and then we can talk about the editing. I want to talk a little bit about kind of the strategy of shooting it, but I don't really know how much to get into. I mean, it was a lot of you know, like walking around, looking for the shots, kind of capturing different things, focusing on like, okay, I'm getting pieces wide. Okay, now I'm going to switch lenses and then I change focus to shoot things tighter. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, knowing like which pieces they really needed and getting those. I was switching white balances between inside and outside to like make sure I was getting daylight and then I shoot 4400 on the inside. I don't really think there's really much else to recap on. Is there anything else that kind of like stood out to you from from just from walking the grounds and shooting? Mm, I mean, not really. I guess it, 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 this kind of factors into the the strategy with the multiple people, which I'm going to go ahead and talk about that now and then I think it'll factor into what I'm saying. But, you know, we had... We had a multi-day event. We had multiple multiple people shooting, and we knew we were going to have to deliver this on a short timeline. 
And so we set up a Google Drive link and had everybody upload their footage there basically as soon as they were done shooting. So once the morning people were done, they would upload there and same in the evening. And so that gave us the ability to look at the footage every day and kind of see what sort of stuff we were getting. And we could think about it in the context of the edit to get an idea of, you know, like, where are we at on this? What, what do we need more of? And one thing that really stood out to me after the first day was, you know, we had heard from the clients that one thing they wanted to show was that this was a big event with a lot of people. And so the obvious answer is, you know, you got to shoot wide and get, you know, big crowds in the shots. And so that was kind of some of the, that was some of the major uh, instructions we had given to the volunteers. What I kind of realized looking at some of the footage was, you know, this is great. We've got some really good shots that show lots of people at the event, but you know, even in just a minute and a half video, if you show a bunch of clips and they're all like that, then it kind of loses some of the impact, you know, and like you, you see a bunch of shots of crowds and after a while it's, you, they kind of run together. And so really like we kind of got to where we needed to get some tighter shots too, to show some details because in the final edit, you want to be able to show some wide shots and then show some tight shots and then go back to wide. And, you know, you want, you want a variety there. And so that was something that I realized looking at it. And then I know when I was shooting later in that, you know, later throughout event, I made sure to try and get both types of shots. So I got some that were really wide and then I got some like way up close detail shots. Um, and kind of being in the mindset of which of those are you going for and, you know, being intentional about what types of shots you're capturing, uh, you know, is really important. Yeah, that's all, that's all good. And I think that's a good segue into talking about the editing. So instead I'm going to go back to the camera gear one more time and ask you another question. (laughs) And that's whenever you're shooting, were you carrying, you said you shot on two lenses. Were you yeah. carrying both lenses with you or did you go back to home base and change lenses? I went back to home base. So I, I would pick a lens and go out and say, right now I'm getting wide shots and I'm just going to go do that. And then I would get that for a while and then I'd go back and switch the lens and, you know, and do the same thing. And the reason I did that is because I, what I find is that when I have multiple lenses on me, I feel like I, I'll be in a situation, I'll see stuff happening and, I want to get the wide shot and then I want to get a tight shot of the same thing. And I end up swapping lenses. And I feel like sometimes I miss moments because I'm messing with my gear and, and I guess having the multiple lenses is making me think of, you know, which lens should I be using? Whereas if I just have the one on me, then that's the lens I'm using. So I'm going to get shots with that. And for me, at least that was working better. I feel like I want to get one of those peak design clip things where like oh, you can peak, peak design, you say <laughs> they just, they just finished their, their kick. Kickstarter on the micro clutch. Mm-hmm. I didn't buy a micro clutch. Shocking. Man, I almost I was like on the page and I'm like thinking about it. I'm like thinking about how I hold my camera. I'm like, man, is this mm-hmm. is this me? And uh what I concluded was that everyone in the pictures that they had showing those those clutches were holding their cameras wrong. <laughs> because whenever you hold like the XT XT three and four and five and thirty and all those have the, the shutter button on the top. And so your hands aren't like holding it like a like normal grip where your fingers would be perpendicular it's not, it's not like a pistol grip yeah where your fingers would be perpendicular to the grip they're more of like at a at a slant like your mm. your tips of your fingers should be pointing down running along the side of the camera so you can put your finger up on on top to press the button and so i was thinking about like that's how i hold the camera but all these people are kind of like holding it like a grip and if you hold the xd3 like that the grip's not deep enough which is one of the complaints that a lot of people have from the cameras the grip's not deep enough but if you hold it where your fingers are slanted and pointing down, which I feel like is how that's ergonomically built, 
then you don't have that problem. And I think that the micro clutch would have interfered with how I hold my camera. Ooh, hot take. Yeah, I know. So I didn't pre-order it. I, I think we're getting a little off topic here, though. What? What were we talking about? <laughs> oh, right. So, so uh, I, I carried my second lens with me, and I've carried it in a few different ways. Uh, this time, I had a fanny pack, and I put it in the fanny pack, Ooh, and I wore it like a cross-body situation, mm-hmm. and it just had that puppy in there. That is a terrible way to hold a $1,000 lens, because it is, it's just not safe. Yeah. But it's, it's like it zips shut, and it was probably fine, and it worked for me, because like I would kind of find a little table, and I would like take that lens out and I would take it swap and then put my other the lens back in and boom and I would just keep going and I didn't I think I changed lenses like that three times total so it wasn't like shoot change lens shoot change lens shoot yeah. it was okay I got the bits that I need now I'm going to switch to this different mode but I did carry it on me so I didn't have to go back mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of like have that option yeah that's fair but I've also used a like a, you know those climber chalk bag things. Mm-hmm. I have one of those and I've used that for holding lenses and that works really good because it's like soft and cushy and you can like run it around your belt and you can just like boop. See, that's what I, there. that's what I do. Um, but I, instead of having a chalk bag, I have something that has a little bit more form to it. Sure. And so it holds the lens really securely. It's big enough to hold a 70 to 200. That thing works really well. You just have it weighing on you. There was, this was like 20, 12 time frame i was at a friend's wedding and the wedding photographer was like was shooting and i I can't i don't even know how how he did it but he changed lenses so fast (laughs) he was like he was like the john wick of camera gear and he like he's like shooting and he like comes down like takes the lens off and like snaps it onto his camera thing and grabs the other one like in the same motion brings it back up click click puts it on and just keeps shooting oh man i'm not on that level he didn't like even lose a beat he was like (laughs) crazy i was like i need to get on i need to get on that level yeah i don't have the systems in place for that mm-hmm. sort of that sort of lifestyle but it's, it just sticks with me that was 10 years ago and i still think about it sometimes i'm like man yep. if i was that guy i'd be so fast at changing lenses i feel like you're about to say that you want to get the uh peak design capture clip thing that works with lenses yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think it'd be cool i wish they made one for x mount but they don't yeah it's really frustrating mm-hmm. you know they 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 all their product material for a lot of, for this, like the capture clip and clutch and stuff. They're like, oh yeah, Fuji. Fuji's great. Well then like, where's my, uh, where's my uh, lens mount thing? That's a great question. You know what? I'm just going to call them up. Give them a ring. Hey, Mr. Design. Peak. Can I call you Peak? <laughs> okay, let's talk about the editing. <laughs> Sounds good. Lucas, what software did we use? <laughs> DaVinci Resolve. Shocking answer. Yep. And Us? We, never. Yeah, we upgraded to uh, the beta 3 mm-hmm. of 18.5, which added a few features. Significantly, the feature where it you can it will, uh, if you like copy clips into the timeline, it will make, it will go full screen and crop. Yeah. Which made doing the wide versions and the vertical versions, so we had to deliver like three different formats for this, mm-hmm. made that way easier. Yeah, yeah. And also, somewhere down the line, they added the thing where you could change the resolution of your timeline after the fact. Because mm-hmm. yeah. like we had to do an ultra wide and we had to do a, a vertical, and you just copied the timeline and changed the resolution. Yep. And you're like, Lucas, I don't know why you didn't do this. <laughs> and I was like, because you can't do that in DaVinci Resolve. I've tried like three times, and you can't. You're like, oh, oh no, wait. When did they add that feature? That's a great feature because when you copy the clips manually, all of like the track audio volumes and stuff don't copy mm-hmm, over and mm-hmm. so you have to do all that manually whereas if you duplicate it it's exactly the same yeah so psa you can now change the resolution of your timeline on the fly in davinci resolve good to know yep pretty huge so yep. we use that 
we obviously set it up as a shared project. We kept, you know, we had our one folder with like the link location. We just dropped the clips in and that worked mm-hmm. really good this time. I mean, yeah, that was, that was easy. I think partially because we had a very simple folder structure, Yeah, maybe lessons learned there. Um, and in general, I mean, I know we've beat that to death on this podcast, but the collaboration stuff feels like that made such a big difference on this project. Oh, it's fantastic, especially on like delivery night. Mm-hmm. I was working on it, finishing up the stuff. You came in. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to switch over to color matching. And so I just like switched to the color tab and then you were in the edit tab doing stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. like, just boop, 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 working through the color. And we're both on the project at the same time. Just yeah. like finishing it up. You know, it seems like it, it does pretty well with locking you out of things that you shouldn't both be editing at once. Cause like, yep, you would hate to have that where like two people edit the timeline and then, oh no, like, you know, somebody loses their edits and it's really good about not letting you do stuff, you know, if someone else is in that tab or whatever. And it just, it really works well. I don't know if it was just where we were working or what, but I never had a problem of the a clip like disappearing out from under me when I was doing the grade. So that yeah. was never an issue. Yeah. Yeah. No, it. I, I just think back to when we were using Final Cut and what we would have had to do for a project like this. And I feel like basically it would have had to have been one of us doing the edit. Yeah, exactly. And, and having two people able to do that has been so instrumental like in us being able to get these projects well, done on time it's it's made it possible for us to do things that i don't think we would have been able to take on before because yeah. like we, i don't really think you know either of us had the time to like commit to doing you know like this whole thing like we, we made it work but it's a lot simpler and easier when we can both mm-hmm. work on it yep i agree yeah so if we were if we were using final cut for this what we would have done is like we would have culled through the footage and we would create tags for things that are good like maybe like here's the worship stuff that's good here's the you know like the playing around stuff that's good and all this whatever yeah and like we i would have gone through them and like in out keyword one in out keyword two in and then just like yeah. blew yeah, through all like the this footage whole, this whole like favorite workflow yeah, thing super fast mm-hmm. and i was like okay well how do we do that for da vinci is there a way to kind of like force force that in like what's the best way to sort this because i mean I, like one way to do it would be just make all the bins and then physically sort all the footage. But you don't want the full clip of every clip. You just want like yeah. in and outs of little bits of it. But the problem is you could you can set the in and outs on a clip and the resolve will save those in and outs for you. So you don't have to go back and like reset them later. But you can't do two sets of in and outs. You yeah. can have like two sections so of if you a have clip. A lo- if you have a long clip, you have mm-hmm. to pick one. Which you can in Final Cut. You can mm-hmm. have a, as many little favorite sections as yeah. you want. Yeah. And so I had the bright idea to try using the subclip functionality in Resolve. And what that is, is if you set an in and out point, you can go up to the viewer, click and drag it back into the bin, and it will create a new version of that clip called a subclip, and then it gives you the opportunity to name it if you want. Mm-hmm. And then you just have another version of that clip. And and somehow I think that doesn't create a new file on disk. No, it doesn't. It just, but, but in, in your bins, it looks like a completely separate clip. Yeah, so we were we did that and I thought that was kind of an annoying process to like drag it down into the bin and then move it into another bin or you could drag it directly into the other bin but then it moves you into that bin and then you had to click mm. back into the one that you were it, in. It was slow. Yep. And the other problem I had, maybe this would have been better if we had also used keywords or something, but the bigger problem I had was that when we were in the edit, it's like, okay, well, I've got all these favorites in this bin, but it was still hard to find stuff. Like I, I don't, when we were actually doing the edit, I don't actually know if it saved that much time. I don't think it. I don't think it saved really any time at all. It was like 
we we went through and did all the faving and but it was like here's a hundred clips and now like sorting through those is a giant pain Mm -hmm. and in actuality it was i was like okay i know that the person who was shooting on this camera shot in this location this location and this location and i know this other person wasn't here that day but they were here this other day and so i like I knew if I went into this camera folder and like looked by t- timestamp that I could find like the chunk of it of like here's this part of this event that I'm looking for to find yeah. this clip. Interesting. And then I was looking at 20 clips, not 100 clips scrolling through that are in yeah. whatever random order. Yep. And so just like going and looking in the original camera folders was way easier for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. And then the in and out points were already set because we did the whole sub clip thing. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, I'll just grab this in and out it's, point and it's move like, on. It's like in, in hindsight... I would have rather set the in and outs and then tag or keyword things rather than making the sub clips. And then, you know, it, there weren't that many clips that I would have wanted to pull two things from. And it's like, if you need to, you can just change the in and outs. I think yeah. that would have been easier. I think the big, big use for sub clips is doing it from the timeline instead. Yeah. Like if you have, you know, three or four clips that you want to use and you're like, man, this isn't really the right spot for this, but I know I'm going to need them later mm, that's a or good I don't point. want to forget about them. You can just drag them from the timeline into a new bin and it'll just make sub clips of them. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, well, that way you're not like, because I know we've all done it where it's like somewhere down, farther down in your timeline on some other track, there's a bunch of clips. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that's kind of where I'm holding those things <laughs> until yeah. I need them. And like, if you don't need them for a while, like you could chuck them into a subclip. Yeah, I like that idea. That makes sense. But for for what we were trying to do here, which was emulate this final cut feature, mm-hmm. did not work. Yeah. So I still haven't figured out like what's the best way to cull mass amounts of footage in Resolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did seem like that was slower than it would have been in Final Cut, which is disappointing. Yeah. I haven't tried doing this keyword thing that you've mentioned that you can do. I have done the color coding for like one of the things in like doing all the color matching for this. I wanted to be able to identify, like, is this the Sony camera? Is this the Canon? Is, et cetera. And so we had everything sorted by camera. And so I went into the camera folder, select all, and I set the color. And the color would copy when we did the subclipping. But if it wasn't color-coded before we subclipped, it didn't get the color on it. Oh, And so there were some things that got subclipped that didn't have colors on it that made it a little confusing. Mm. But I was using those colors when doing the the grade so that I could, like, recognize ah that's s5 mark ii yeah i know that i need to just copy copy the grade from two clips back and then use that as my starting point right interesting so that kind of worked but i don't know we need to figure out a better way to sort footage and resolve yeah i mean part of it is like one one thing we could have maybe done better on this project is i I think we ended up with too much footage and you know you can definitely overshoot events and i i knew that as a shooter but i especially know it as an editor like it's you know, you you have too many decisions to make. It's like me saying that I don't want to carry two lenses around, so then I might be trying to decide between them. You know, if you have 300 clips of one night, then that's a lot of footage to look through. And yep. I'd rather have I'd rather have people be really intentional about it. And I'm only going to shoot, you know, the the really unique and good shots. And you know, if we get a couple days into the event and we already have everything we need from a certain thing, then just tell people to not shoot that anymore because we had a little bit too much. Yeah, definitely. And it's, we were worried that we weren't going to have enough going into this. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was part of the reason why it got overshot. And I know it's like whenever you're working with other people, especially when you're working with volunteers, it's, it's like they come out here and they're really excited and they like, they shoot all this footage 
And then they watch the thing back and they're like, oh, that was my shot and that was my shot and that's really cool. And whenever it, it's so much footage, like you're not watching all of all of their shots. You're yeah. like, like for me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have like the live preview on. I scrub through that puppy and I'm like, is there a banger? Nope. Going on, moving on. I'm just like scrub, 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 scrub. Yep. Looking for the ones. And like, I don't even scrub every clip. If I look at it, I'm like, eh, not really what I'm looking for with this part. I'm just going to skip over that one, look for another yeah. one. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you're not giving the time to their footage because you don't have the time to give. And so then they might be like, wow, I had this like really, really good shot that they totally could have used right here. And I don't know why they didn't use it. Am I doing something wrong? And the answer is no. I just, you know, time to watch everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's why, that's why like movies do dailies, right? They watch everything from that day and then like call it and sort it and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we tried to do some of that, but yeah, it's still hard. Yeah. Still hard. So in putting it together, um, we talked about how like we kind of broke it out into sections. I think that one thing to talk about with like cutting this kind of video is that like the easiest thing would be to like, here's my 15 favorite shots, drag, drop, done. And like they're cut on the beat and then just a bunch of random shots. And like, that's one way to do it. But I think what like differentiates a good like recap or like super cut versus a bad one is like implementing all of those good cutting practices as an editor. So things like cutting on contrast and like, if you're going to cut from a wide cut to something tight, don't like cut from Mm -hmm. wide to wide to wide. If you're shooting, you know, bright outdoors, cut on contrast, shoot something indoors next. Right. It's like you want to have, you know, mirroring images or complementary images or contrasting images that, you know, cut next to each other in order to make that work. Yeah. And so, like, we had two different locations. And so, I would do, like, a whip pan that whipped into the other one to, like, follow the motion mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Or maybe, like, here's these people on stage and, like, they did a cool thing. I'm not going to cut to the stage again. Right. I'm going to then cut to a reaction of somebody who saw it. And then cut back to the stage, right? And so it's yeah, like that. That was working really well, especially you know if, if somebody's doing like you know somebody's dancing or if, you know whatever's happening. You know, if somebody tells a joke on the stage. If you immediately cut to somebody laughing, you know, or or whatever, then like it gives continuity to it. Yeah, you have to have like continuity, context, contrast, like all of that's really important. Mm-hmm. And like it could be, it would be so much easier just to drag and drop. Yeah, and or like pick your ten favorite clips and just put those in, but it doesn't have the same storytelling effect and so you kind of have to like give it this like continuity and thread through yeah. through the video and i think that that's harder than it seems for this type of thing yeah if it's a narrative or if it's an interview like the story is just there and it's on the forefront but for something like this it's not at the forefront yeah and I you agree. have to bring it to the mm-hmm. video one thing that's you know I, I think that the context aspect is really important because you know, when we were watching some of these event dailies, there was some stuff that I, I watched the videos from before I actually went to that location and saw those things happening. And there were there was one thing I'm remembering where there, there was a game that kids were playing and I watched the clips that were captured from it. I was like, I don't understand what's happening here. Like I, I could kind of see it, but I didn't even understand what it was. And then I happened to be there later in the week. And I saw in person people playing that game and there was like all this added information, you know, that I got from that. And it was like, oh, okay, I get it now. I see what this is. But that was kind of a useful learning for me whenever we got into the edit, because it made me realize that if I just showed those clips that I saw on the first day, probably the viewer was going to get confused too. And they'd be wondering, you know, what's going on there? I don't really understand that. And so, you know, kind of telling that story, building up context so that the viewer can follow what's going on, understand what you're doing. I feel like 
is really important. Yeah, it's like in you have a series of you know ten sub three second clips, but in that you're you're giving them a place like a, a, a sense of place, a sense of context, and then an emotion, and mm-hmm. then like these details, and you have to like hit all of those things and in the right order. Or else it's just confusing, and it's it's a, a mash yeah. of sound and, and motion. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I feel like I feel like we did a good job in delivering that, and like making sure we kind of hit all of those beats. Yeah, I think. And so. I think there was a pretty good through thread mm-hmm. to it, and like everything really tied together well. So yeah, I'm I mean, not to like toot my own horn, <laughs> but I, I feel pretty good about I mean, this the, one. The video is like a minute, a minute and forty seconds ish. Yep. And I feel like you know we we managed to keep it interesting. You know, it didn't drag, and I yeah I think. I think we told the story of that event. Yeah, I think so too. So, color grading. <laughs> yeah, how'd that go with all those cameras? <laughs> I don't think it was as bad as I thought it was going to be. I conformed. I just used the LUT for, I didn't even do like what I normally do, which is like, here's my tree. Or like I group all of the cameras into groups. And then I have like my main correction for the per camera. And then I have like a pre-group thing where I do noise reduction and a mm-hmm. post-group thing where I do like look and then I have this final look and then I didn't do any of that stuff. I was like, here's my four, here's my four nodes, which were like white balance primaries, Luma and uh, saturation. And then for some of those, I did like a different, the, anyways, whatever, it doesn't matter. Sure it does. I, I have like two different ways I do saturation. One is which I'll set the color space to like HSL and I'll turn off the H channel and the L channel and then I'll tweak the gain um, or like, not the gain, but I like the, yeah, so you have lift, gain, I'll, uh, offset. So like I'll tweak like the offset or the or the gain to kind of change where the contrast is, and it's like a little more natural. Mm, okay. But you have to do that in a parallel node, or else it kind of gets a little goofy. So I only did that for some of those clips that were like weirdly oversaturated. Um, but I just I like made those four, and then I dropped that on everything, and then I just went through and like tweaked it for all of them, and some of them I like copy and paste or whatever. But I think kind of the big takeaway was that for all of the XH2 stuff, I was like, I had to pull down, especially for like the inside stuff. Cause like where we were shooting has these overhead lights that are fluorescents and those lights are so green. <laughs> and so like, in so many of these, like I go to the offset and I go 25, 24, 25. And then like the 24 is my green. And I'm like, just pull the green down, pull the green yeah. down. And so I had to do that on a lot of the Fuji stuff. And then, because it picks up the green just a little more. Yeah, the X-Trans. Yeah, because yeah. X-Trans has more green in it. And I had to, like, boost the saturation on all those. I had to pull the saturation back on all the Lumix stuff. The Canon was basically in the middle. And then I don't remember what I had to do for the Sony stuff. I think it was just kind of, maybe it was, like, a little more muddy. And I had to, like, bring mm-hmm. up the shadows and that sort of thing. But overall, it wasn't too bad. It was just a matter of, like, getting everything in that window. And then I tried to, like, do a final look. And so I kind of added some blue in the shadows and some warmth in the highlights and... I was going to do like halation and grain and all this stuff. I was like, maybe, maybe it's not worth doing that. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't because we ended up exporting this project. At least I ended up exporting it. I think I did the the vertical and the horizontal. And then I did the 16 by nine, like four times. Yeah. Because we had like, we had like two different reviews and then I uh, had to like, did and move and then MOV, move, MOV, MOV. And then I did an MP4 and then I did like H265 MOV. So I, I like 10 times yeah. and because I didn't do any noise correction or film grain on it, those exports were quick, <laughs> man, like putting out an 1080p. I mean, it took like less than 10 seconds. And that was with multi-pass on? Uh, yeah. Well, now when you turn multi-pass on, it took more like 30 seconds. But, yeah. and that was the other thing is like, we had a, we had a 
last project when I did some of the noise reduction or something, or it was like one of these effects, it, we got some like weird noise into the footage. Yeah. And we fixed it, or you fixed it mm-hmm. by encoding it with multipass. Yeah. And so now I'm like, final deliverable, always multipass. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what was going on there. It was like, it, it looked kind of like what you see if you have a, gra- if you film a gradient and you have a camera that's too low of a bit rate. Right. And get that banding. Yeah. You get that banding. And I don't know why it was happening. It, well, I wasn't seeing it in the editor, but as soon as we did an export, we were. So, man, I had that problem on some of the shots. Like, cause like those Lumix ones were really, really contrasting. So I had some outside shots where it's like, here's this white barrel and it's clipping in one spot and then like banding out of it. And I'm like, I'm yep. trying to like get the contrast down. And now I have this like, weird moving banding <laughs> image oh boy that was that was a pain <laughs> so i think that all made sense uh while we were waiting on comments and i had like a little bit of downtime i got a chance to screw around with fusion nice i was trying to do a thing where i had this drone shot where i was coming up and then rotating and so i was trying to put like the the logo in the middle and then i wanted it to i wanted it to scale down get smaller as i was the drone was going up and I wanted it to rotate with it. So it mm-hmm. seemed like it was like it faded in in place and right. then rotated. Like a, like a motion tracking type yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. And I tried using planar tracking and I tried using like point tracking. I mean, I just couldn't figure that thing out. We're going to have to learn that stuff. It mm-hmm. seems like it would really improve the projects, and, you know, especially because sometimes clients ask for stuff like yeah. that and they don't know how hard it is or whatever. And we need to learn some of that stuff. That's something that got really, really easy in Final Cut before, mm-hmm. I, before I switched as they added all that motion tracking yeah. stuff. Yep. And the motion tracking in Fusion is pretty stinking good. Mm-hmm. I think that I was just kind of doing because like the image would skew when it rotated. Yeah. And so I think that like I needed to use the tracking point, not the planar track. And I couldn't quite figure it out. Mm-hmm. I think it's totally possible. Possible, but I ended up just like doing the simple thing of like, it's a it's a constant rotation from the drone. So I just like set it up two points on a rotation, yeah, and just like let it yep. do the thing. But it was interesting in that like to do the motion thing, it was one clip, but like I made it into a fusion clip, and then like the the graphic that was going on top happens in fusion, and it doesn't show up on the in the edit tab it's just like here's one clip and oh then weird you have to go into the fusion page to see like where is the title and where is all that happening mm-hmm. i was wondering if that was gonna be confusing for you to be like where is this title coming in it's not on the edit page yeah i don't know i mean it seemed fine and then what i found out was like i really only needed that to happen on like half of that clip so i cut it but the first half of it had already been turned into like a fusion clip oh weird and in fusion you have like an in node and an out node and then like you can change things of like, does it show up or does it not show up? And I had deleted everything out because I was like, oh, I don't want to do any fusion stuff on this. So delete all the nodes. Then the clip wouldn't show up in the viewer <laughs> and edit. And I was like, what is happening? And so I had to go in and like do an in and an out and then connect the two together. So it like, it would just pass the video in to the out feed and actually show up. And I was like trying to figure out how to unfusion a clip and I couldn't figure out how to do it. And boy, do we have a lot to learn. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like uh, back to the back to the learning material on that one. Yeah, for sure. It's man, I love I love that that's all built in. Mm-hmm. Like, I get really annoyed having to like go from okay, I want to do this thing now in Photoshop, and so you have to like round trip it to Photoshop and then back to Lightroom. Yeah, or you have to round trip from Premiere to After Effects and back and that sort of thing. Or even like with Final Cut to Motion and like doing the adjustment layers and stuff. 
always found that to be a little confusing of like yeah. round tripping between the softwares. And I like that it's all in one. Yeah. And, one and application. We didn't do any audio on this one, but like having the Fairlight stuff built in, like it's just, yeah, it's it nice en- having it all in one program. It encourages me to learn it basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but overall, I think that it went smoothly. I think the color grading wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. It's good. I think that I probably could have spent another three hours on it to like make it perfect, but it uh-huh. kind of didn't matter. Uh, you know, one thing that was kind of interesting was doing those alternate versions. You mentioned a little bit about that, but you know, it's like you edit in 16 by nine and then you, you know, we also had to deliver a 32 by nine and a nine by 16. And man, is it hard? Like if you, if you've been looking at an edit that's in 16 by nine, anytime you do those other two, it just feels like you're missing information. Talk to me about how you did your, cause you did the vertical and I did mm-hmm. the horizontal and I feel I think the vertical was harder, but also the the ultra wide. I did that. It, it took me like no time. That's I good. did it in like twenty minutes. Yeah. Well, what's so, hard, what's hard about the vertical to me is that you know if your if your normal shot is a is a sixteen by nine wide thing, then like if you think about your framing, a lot of times you might have like two subjects in that photo. You know, you've got two people talking to each other, or a person on one side and then something's happening on the other side of the frame. And like you filmed it that way because that's like, you know, it's a pleasing image. And then when you go vertical with it, you can't fit all that in the frame, you know, like you, you don't have enough vertical room to make it all tiny so you can see it all. And so, I mean, I, I duplicated the timeline and used that, that thing that, you know, lets you scale, scale the full image. So, I mean, like, it was all, it was all like valid whenever I did that in terms of there wasn't any black, you know, it was like, like mm-hmm. the clips filled the frame, but I just found myself on most of the clips having to do something to it. So, you know, in some cases you can just slide it left to right. So it's like, okay, you know, there's a person in this frame. I use the rule of thirds when I filmed it, but since it's vertical, I need to like slide it over to the right a little sure. bit so that they're in the shot. Those are easy, but sometimes like there's a lot going on in the clip and you want to be able to show that. And so, you know, you end up having to keyframe the motion. And so I would like start the clip on the left, you know, and keyframe the position, go to the end of the clip, you know, do another keyframe, slide it to the right. So that basically get like a panning thing. Did they add keyboard shortcuts for keyframing in beta 13? I don't, I don't in beta three. I don't know if they did or not. Um, I should have looked at it. I, I didn't take the time to look at it. Yeah. So I didn't have to really do any of that motion tracking stuff. And I think that's what made mine quicker. But like I did the auto scale thing. And then I turned on the whole like track the select the clip that the playhead's under. And I was just I would use um like shift up and down to just jump from clip to clip. And so I was like, go to the next clip, slide, next clip, slide. And so like I had my mouse mm-hmm. kind of hovering over the little Y thing in the inspector. And I was just like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And because we shot everything so wide um, for most of the stuff, I did, had, didn't really have too much reframing to do. So I was able to blast through it like That's super, good. super quickly. That's good. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it just depends on what you're filming. Sometimes when we've made those ultra wide versions, it's been a little bit harder because you have information that the viewer needs mm-hmm. at the top and at the bottom of the clip. And so it's like, well, how do you show both of those? You yep. know, and, it gets gets a little tough. Yeah. I guess like I'm always interested to see how other people edit and how they move around the timeline and like how they're doing things and what keyboard mm-hmm. shortcuts. Like I think I watched a video on like Maddie Hopoya editing in, in Final Cut and I was horrified. <laughs> and I'm like, You're doing what are you doing? What? No, what? 
Yeah. And like, obviously, you know, everyone does things differently. And so like, I'm always a little curious. And so whenever, like when I'm moving around the timeline, I use the buttons for the, like there's three different buttons in Resolve for like all the way wide or like kind of cut yeah. in or like super cut in. Mm-hmm. And I'll use those as my shortcuts to set my zoom range. And if I need anything different, I'll hold option and I'll scroll. Yeah. And so I kind of like zip around like that to kind mm-hmm. of get in and out and like move to places where I need to. And then it took a long time to get used to dragging the playhead. Yeah. But I usually leave the playhead as selecting separately from the clips. Yeah, I do So too. I can like select a clip mm-hmm. and then I can move the playhead around to like do my scrubbing and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. That gets me every so often though, because I'll be like making an edit and I'm like, why is this not working? Yeah. And it's because I'm editing the wrong clip. Yeah, and then you're like, control Z, control Z, control yeah, Z. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I hate that. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm not too different. I don't use those buttons you're talking about. I use shift Z, which shows you the entire timeline on the screen. And so if I'm way zoomed in working on something and like okay now i was at the end now i need to go back to the beginning i'll do shift z click the playhead where i want it and then option scroll to get uh to get zoomed in whenever, where i want to be whenever you're doing cuts are you usually are you using the blade tool or using command b uh usually command b okay yeah and then are you i typically am like jumping a lot between like the trim tool and then the pointer tool on whether or not i need to like ripple ripple slide yeah, or I do the other that. one yeah yeah so with the, of, the the a and t mm-hmm. uh commands yeah. yeah i still can't figure out how you're supposed to use the dynamic trim thing it's like i get that it's different and i've watched videos on it and mostly i just find it annoying yeah i guess i need to look into that more i don't really know what that is it's but. weird yeah that's all yeah anyway editing i feel like we covered that pretty good yeah i think so I think it all went pretty well. Um, any any big takeaways that we haven't talked about? Uh, well, I know that we're recording without any air conditioning on. It's a thousand degrees outside, and but I feel like my ears are just at the precipice of being too warm, mm. and that like I kind of want to like get a little airflow in but there. You, but you haven't done that all but during this episode. I feel like I haven't had to. So I think these cooling pads are keeping me like just at just that okay. Oh, okay and i think in a normally air-conditioned environment i'd be all right yeah so this i mean an hour with not, not with bad. over your headphones on this is pretty good for me yeah yeah i think so i feel like the sound oscillation has been good mm-hmm. and i can hear everything and i i think maybe i'm staying on top of my boobs and my bops so that's good <laughs> that's good uh yeah so overall overall the headphones are working yeah Th- thumbs up for the headphones yep <laughs> All right. I think that's it. That's it for the show today. Thanks for listening. And we'd encourage you to rate the show on iTunes and tell a friend, but only if you enjoyed it. You can find out more about us on our website at cameragearpodcast.com. We'll be back with more next week.